Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the Live to Walk Again podcast. My name is Jeremy Dixon, your host as always, and with me once again, we have the whole crew back in here. Brandon's here, Brandon Stevens and Ricardo Benavides. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Jeremy. Good to be here. Nice seeing Brandon on the mic again. It feels real good to be back. I was feeling, you know, I was not feeling any certain way about it. I just really appreciate Ricardo stepping in and helping, and now I really feel like it wouldn't be the same without you here. Oh, thanks. So I hope we can continue to all get on this podcast together. And I'm happy. I'm just grateful to be here with you guys. Me too. Me too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Ricardo is a, is a vital uh, piece to the yeah. puzzle now. You never know what you're missing until you get it. It's yeah, true. that's right. Yeah, I'm, And I can't believe I enjoy this as much as I do. <laughs> I can't believe you do. <laughs> Me either, that. dude. <laughs> It actually makes it a lot more fun. Yeah, that, it's funny. That. It's well, it's making Brandon step his game up. He's actually listening Shoot. to podcast interviews before we uh, before we record, which is great. Yeah, it, it could um, have gone one of two ways. I could have just done less yeah. because <laughs> Ricardo that, was doing really so do much, much or I could be like, less. "Hey, man, what the hell? I can do that too." Yeah, yeah. yeah. couldn't do much <laughs> less, but you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, guys, when, when you uh, showed up today. Um, I made you both watch a video of a gentleman named Clifford Owensby, uh, who is a paraplegic gentleman from Dayton, Ohio, being dragged out of his car at a uh, at a traffic stop by police officers. without you know they didn't get his wheelchair and have him get out of the car they literally drug him by his hair uh out of the car and then handcuffed him behind his like you know handcuffed him on the ground like he was going to get away and then drug him to the police car with his hands handcuffed behind his back yeah yeah this when i saw that jeremy it was uh uh man's inhumanity to man is, yeah. it, it's a vivid picture. Um, the one thing that I'm thankful for is that they didn't delete the uh, police uh, video. The body cam footage. Body cam yeah. video. Because it really gives you a firsthand perspective of how cruel somebody can be to another human being. Because he was begging. You know, he told the guy at least 30 times oh, yeah. that he was a paraplegic yeah. and he couldn't get out of the car. And they're yeah. like, well, why? how'd you get in the car? Yeah. He's like, I had help. No, we'll, we'll help you get out. Yeah. yeah. To, yeah. you know, what I told you, Jeremy, you asked me if I had seen the video. I said, no, I have not seen the video. I know of the situation. I read the article. I just said I, I didn't want to watch the video. I'm getting so tired of this these videos. Um, and I know it feels like as a society, it's like, oh, this week, another uh, mass shooting or this week, another... Um, armed black person being being you know or, or something like that and like are we getting are we getting um numb to this as a society and i'm personally just like i don't know if it's like i don't want to know about it or i just it's so hard to watch this happen but it, I, I don't know if it's the right thing to do to not watch it yeah we got to stay engaged though yeah and and i'm glad you brought it up and get it out here on the podcast yeah you know because if you don't if you're not engaged if you uh you know, America first yourself, you're screwing yourself. Right. No, I, I agree, you know, and, you know, Clifford Owensby, if you're out there, if anybody out there hears this podcast and, and knows him or has a way to get in touch with him, you know, please connect us. I'd love to have him on the show to talk about what happened, um, if and when he's ready to talk about that. Because, um, yeah, you know, as if you don't deal with enough with a spinal cord injury to have to deal with something like that. I mean, that's going to be traumatic. I mean, that's going to traumatize him for years, probably. Oh, or any, and well, it, it, it traumatized Brandon and me watching. Yeah, you, right? and me, and me yeah. too. Like, yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I feel yeah. sick. Like, I yeah. just hearing the audio of it again while yeah. you guys were watching it, it just made, yeah, it, it made me sick to myself. The, uh, the levels of abuse in that video like and then the amount of things that were wrong with it uh, being that one you know he felt like and the and they said because of his prior record he was being in our in my opinion stereotyped profiled profiled two he's paraplegic he's asking them to 
consider what's going on here. I can't right. do what you're asking me to do. Um, and then the just three, the lack of care for, as Ricardo would, would say, man to man. Like, what are we doing as humans with each other right now? How are we interacting? Right. Like, why do we need to be like that to one another? When he was like, he was telling the guy, call your supervisor. Like, you know, I'll, I'll get out of the car, but I yeah, And can't. he said, I'll get you, after I get you out of the car, I'll call my supervisor. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm going to either drag you out of the car or you're going to get out of the car. He's like, I can't get out of the car. Right. And so he drug him out of the and car. And in the video, you see another police officer over there. Mm-hmm. And he's just as culpable as the police officer. Yeah. Like how, yeah. Yeah. That's what I never understand about these situations. Is it's how, just like George like, Floyd yeah, all over again, when right? That, when the cop's kneeling on George Floyd's neck and the other cops are standing there making sure people don't, you know, it's come crazy, in to man. help him or whatever. And yeah. it's like, how do you not, like, if, if, you know, like, we're a team here, guys, but if one of you does something that's fucked up, I'm going to be like, oh, we need to stop that or whatever the case. Right. I'm going to call you out and hold you accountable for what you're doing. And it's like, it seems like with the police officers, they just are, it's, it's, uh, whatever, you know, but team blue, no matter what. And, you know, we'll deal with the consequences later, which is just, not the way that the people that I guess keep well, but the you'll rules have, in our society. Yeah, should you'll be have anarchy if this keeps yeah. up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If those that we entrust to uphold the law don't uphold the law, even against other people that that should be upholding the law, then um, whether it's a police officer, or a corrections officer, what have you, you know, you're going to have chaos. Yeah, yeah. We feel like we're close to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. Um, it I just shouldn't be this us up. versus them mentality. Yeah. It should be we. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I didn't, uh, you know, I wanted to bring that up and, and get that out there because that's a pretty, I mean, it traumatized me watching it. So I wanted yeah. to. Just imagine going through it. Yeah. I wanted to, to just bring it to people's attention if you hadn't seen it already. Um, but this week, guys, we do have a really good interview guest. Um, we had. 20, the Washington State 22nd Legislative District Representative uh, Jessica Bateman on the show. Uh, she's my local, uh, and I believe yours too, Brandon, uh, Legislative District Representative. And uh, she's on the Healthcare and Wellness Com- Vice Chairman of the Healthcare and Wellness Committee. She's well, yeah, she just happens to be first- really ingrained into the healthcare system here in Washington. Right, right. And she's a first term uh, congresswoman or representative. So the fact that she was able to get on as a vice chair of this prestigious committee is, you know, pretty telling. So, um, you know, when I heard about it, um, that she had been uh, not, uh, put on that committee when she first got elected last year, I had reached out and we tried to work something out, but she had just started on the um, uh, serving, so I didn't want to. Yeah, we. She had enough going like a on. Better, yeah, it seemed like pandemic. a better idea to do it. Well, it seemed like a better idea to do it now after she had had some experience and and gone through a session in uh, in the state house of representatives. So uh, we got to visit with her, find out about you know what her role is on that committee, like what her responsibilities are, kind of what she thought going in versus what reality was. Um, you know, quite a few things. We talked to, she's a big um, housing advocate in our area as well, which is a huge problem right now. So we touched on that. I only had a half an hour with her though. So our time was really, really limited, but it was an yeah, action packed. I mean, yeah, you know, we, I went hard, man. Yeah, I went yeah. hard in the paint on yeah, that one. She said, just throw her into the fire. Why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> You know, well, I knew I only had 30 minutes, so I just well, I had to get out. I had all these questions. I'm like, I'm just going to keep throwing questions at her until till time's up. Yeah. Um, and she's also a, a big proponent for universal health care. Yeah. Right? And housing and, um, you know, things that government traditionally has stayed away from. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, like health care has always been, you know, employer driven. Right. Um, and as we're seeing with the pandemic, I think you brought it up, Jared, you know, as people lose their jobs, they lose their health care. Then right. what happens? Right. And it doesn't matter if you're old, young, in between. You know, that's a hardship for anybody, especially if you have an illness or an injury that uh, or a chronic uh, 
condition that you require you know medications or doctor visits when you don't have that health care that's a big slope that uh, starts sliding down fast and you're down at the bottom really quick right right and i i asked her also about the uh, uh here in washington state we have the long-term i guess disability or long-term care yeah care uh, act yeah yeah care act yeah. yeah i got it wrong when i was interviewing her yeah. too but uh the long-term care act where you pay into basically a fund that will then when you're you know older or have a, a catastrophic injury or something and you need health care um you know either in your home or, or in a facility then this will go towards that but anybody who is dealing with a spinal cord injury you already know that um, the, the max on so the max on that fund is thirty nine thousand dollars for the life of it yep and you can burn through thirty nine thousand dollars in about six months dealing yeah. with either um, paying caregivers to come in and help you or uh, you know going into a facility or something like that so um, we got to the bottom of that and I, I kind of understood where she's coming from because like the vast majority of people aren't gonna use a lot of that money and yeah, I mean, obviously, there's not, you know, spinal cord injuries are pretty rare, you know, well, I, strokes I, I, and different things. But I look at it as another one of those facets of Social Security and Medicaid, right? You know, it's just another uh, piece that of the puzzle that you're going to need or possibly need, right? right. And and if this is just the first cycle through, right? This is not set. You know, it could it'll probably go up. You can't. Uh, stick at 39,000, right. you know, somebody who's 30 years old right now working and uh, in the state of Washington and paying into this fund or they have their own, um, you know, I think this is a safety net because I was reading, so I'm 60, so I was reading some stuff a few years ago about long-term care and health insurance and uh, this was back east, some couples were talking about that they had bought long-term care insurance with the insurance companies and now they're in their 70s somebody broke a hip they needed it and it comes to find out that they weren't going to be covered or they get notifications they're still healthy that their long-term policy that they thought they had was no longer going to be there and if they needed if they wanted it their premiums were going up substantially and some of the people even had to go back to work to pay for the premiums to keep their long-term care insurance so they had been paying their whole life Right. So this is, I think, a great thing that the government um, is stepping in and making people aware of this. And right. one of the things that uh, Jessica had mentioned was this legislative session that she was in due to the pandemic had more input from people because they could zoom in. Because they were more right, accessible. More accessible. And so if you're passionate about an issue, get in there. <laughs> get, you know, this is, um, this is one of the silver linings of the pandemic, right? Is right. that more voices are heard and more people's views are getting seen and understood by our legislators. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, with the thing about Jessica is it seems like this is her niche, yeah. right? And it seemed like what she explained um, in your interview was that every person in the legislation or in the Congress of Washington, right, has kind of a niche and so she has to spend a lot of her time just keeping other legislators up to speed because it's so complicated yeah and i'm just thinking why is why does healthcare have to be that difficult right because we don't have a uni- universal healthcare system we don't have i mean she was talking about how people don't have vision or dental under those yep um and like you said jeremy in the interview people are losing on a, their employment which you know, then they're getting kicked off their health care. Right. And get in your COBRA system. In the system. middle of a pandemic. Right? Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, yeah. <clears throat> it's yeah. it's pretty crazy that it's such a difficult system yeah. to um, maneuver through. Yeah, and I don't remember um, the legislator's name or the representative, but uh, five years ago when Jody died in that car accident and we were down there uh, giving testimony to help get the uh, driving... Um, Distracted driving. Yeah, distracted driving, driving while with electronics, right, Uh, law in when Gina was giving her testimony down there. Um, I remember across the hall, there was a lot of people down there, and there was a uh, a probably, he was probably 60 years old, but he had his mother, and she had um, ALS. And uh, they were down there trying to get 
um, this legislator to listen to them, but he didn't have any time. And because they were so booked, right? And mm -hmm. he just showed up because it was open, I think open sessions or something like that at the time. And it just shows the, goes to show how long this has been going on, right? Just in those five years, things really haven't moved that far, right? So these are really long-term things. And if this is something you're passionate about, anybody who's listening out there, share it with your friends, get out there because eventually, if you live long enough, you're gonna be affected by things like right. healthcare, long-term, uh, insurance or, or you know aids that you're going to need to help with right if you don't have any kids I'm going through that with my uncle right now mm -hmm. right you know so without further ado let's get to uh, to Jessica and we will talk to you guys on the other side this week on the live to walk again podcast we are lucky enough to visit with Jessica Bateman who is the state representative from Washington's 22nd legislative district vice chair of the Healthcare and Wellness Committee, and the former Olympia Mayor Pro Tem and former Olympia City Council member. Uh, Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so excited we were finally able to do this. Uh, <laughs> I know um, we, had, we had talked about, or I talked to some of the people in your office about doing this when you had first started, because, yeah, truth be told, you're my, um, I guess you're my state representative representing my area of Washington state. And I saw that you um, were on the healthcare and uh, wellness committee uh, or that you were vice chair of that committee. And so I was really interested to, um, to talk to you. And I'm kind of glad that we waited because I think when we were originally going to do it, it was right when you would like you were only a couple of weeks into into the first your first term. And, you know, I wanted to know what I guess so you, you're you're pretty familiar with city politics and I wanted to know what how you viewed like going in what your expectations were I guess of state politics versus city politics and then kind of what the reality of that has been since since joining the uh, House of Representatives. Sure thank you yeah it's been a while since we were planning to get this on the calendar so I'm glad that we were finally able to and I do think it's great that I have some time under my belt in order to provide more input. <clears throat> so first this was a really you know unique legislative session because we had it during the pandemic so the nature of this legislative session was quite unique it was virtual all the freshmen coming in you know it's a brand new first legislative session and it was just a real um unique experience. I was a legislative aide years ago to a state representative, so I knew a little bit about the political dynamics at the state level, and I served for five years on the Olympia City Council. So at the local level, it's very different than at the state level. Going into it, I was thinking about being able to apply all of my experiences as a local government elected official, you know, really seeing how things are impacting at the time, my constituents in the city, um, those needs are changing over time. Things like healthcare, you know, the healthcare that my constituents have access to or don't have access to, even within the city, you know, our local governments, those are not areas of expertise that they've traditionally or lines of business that they've had. Um, those would be through the county department of health but over the years, the needs of our communities change. Housing is another issue that's happening more and more at the local level. <clears throat> City council members are taking note of that and trying to be proactive. So I was thinking going into the state legislature, I can use my experience from local government and apply that to what I think are systemic challenges like housing, access to healthcare, quality healthcare. And that was really, I think, affirmed in this process. Um, I think it's really useful to have that experience. Um, but when you come to the legislature, you come with other members and everyone has their own experience, which is a beauty of it. And a lot of what I was surprised by was um, the necessity of talking to so many of my colleagues. You really have to unpack and walk through whatever the issue, the bill, you know, I have to educate my colleagues on issues that aren't their area of expertise. We only, we usually have like three or four areas that we're really 
embedded in. Um, so if I have an issue I have to work on with someone that doesn't know, I have to kind of get them up to speed on it. So that was something that I think I underestimated. Um, you know, the healthcare and wellness committee, a lot of issues come before the committee. Some of them really like wonky policy, scope of practice, things that um, are, you know, really at the micro level. Um, but I, I kind of knew that going in, but I was a little surprised by that too. Yeah, definitely. I, I could only imagine. Uh, you know, from from my perspective as, as someone with a spinal cord injury, um, where healthcare is so important, I, I know I read kind of getting ready for this interview. And actually, this is one of the questions I had for you, um, you know, a few months ago when we were going to originally do this, that I, you know, I saw that you're a self-described healthcare and housing advocate. And, you know, in your opinion, what what's the answer to get more people insured? Are you a, a Medicare for all supporter? Um, you know, do you, uh, you know, it seems like employer-based healthcare, I mean, from my perspective anyway, doesn't really seem to be the answer, especially during the pandemic, um, you know, where people were getting laid off like crazy. You know, what, I guess from your, I guess, limited, I, I know you, you're already kind of a, that's kind of one of your your main main issues, but, um, you know, coming into the, the state politics, like how, how do you propose that we get more people insured? Like, yeah, what, what are yeah. your thoughts? So I work, my day job, I work on behalf of community health centers for a statewide association representing them at the state and the federal level. <clears throat> so I work directly with healthcare providers that are a network of providers that serve Medicaid patients in Washington state. And not all providers actually accept Medicaid patients. So I see on a daily basis, the difference that access to quality healthcare makes to low income people, people that can't afford healthcare, people that speak English as a second language. I firmly believe that healthcare is a human right that every person has and should have. Um, we have a current system that we have to change in order to make that truly possible. We have certain uh, provisions and, and services like Medicare. Um, we also have Medicaid. So I think Medicare for all, making sure that at the federal level, we have advocates there that know what they're doing and can change those policies to make those social safety nets actually include health service, health services. Right now they're considering adding dental and vision to Medicare, which is, it's insane to me that in 2021, those are not benefits. They're already included. It's unfortunate that we have to fight this hard, but we do. And Washington in the last couple of years, especially has made some strides. So we've added coverage for folks for undocumented immigrants. We put money aside for folks that aren't eligible in Washington state for Medicaid, which is really important. Um, there's also a universal healthcare commission that's been um, lauded as one of the best in the country. This is actually putting us on a path to provide recommendations back to the legislature, how we can have universal healthcare in Washington state. That's really what I see as the future of healthcare in Washington. Um, you know, we've had other, you know, areas, um, Representative Macri's worked on hospital transparency, making sure that when we get billed for things, there's transparency in that process. And we know, you know, how much profit's actually being made on some of these services. So there's been a lot of work in a lot of different areas, but I really do believe that that universal health care, we have to make it available to everyone. And that means it has to be universal. And, um, the payment structure that we currently have, it's going to take time for us to transition, which is why the Universal Commission, Commission on Universal Healthcare is going to provide those tangible recommendations. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I wanted to know, yeah, I know that um, there's, I don't even know how controversial it is, but I know that recently um, we had passed the, I guess, long-term care, uh, the, Go ahead. Sorry, what was that? Long-Term Care Trust Act. There you go. Exactly. And so as someone who receives long-term care, um, you know, I, I forget what the exact number was on like the lifetime of how much you can use out of that. And it, but it was something just ridiculously small that, yeah, I think it was like, do you know what the number is off the top? $39,000. Yeah. So 
needing caregivers and like skilled nursing to come into your home, like a lot of people with spinal cord injuries specifically do, and, and spinal cord injuries aren't something that creep up on you, right? It's like a, a tra- like a, a very you know tragic accident of some kind normally that that uh, causes something like this. Um, you know, thirty nine thousand dollars is going to last you like probably four or five, six months, maybe like if you're lucky. Um, so, I mean, how, how do we, like, how do you reconcile, like you're going to pay into this thing for 20 years and God forbid something like this does happen to you or, or any other, you know, major traumatic event that, that causes you physical, uh, physical disability, you know, how, and then you're stuck, you know, I, you know, I have this, you know, $39,000 for life that I can, uh, can use towards my long-term care, but um, you know, do you, is there like some way to expand that? Or like, I, what, do, what do we do? I know this is like a really like early implementation of this, yeah. this thing. You started so. out with the hardball questions. Uh, <laughs> Baptism by fire. Okay. Um, <laughs> so first, I think it's important to think about this in context. So we're, you know, when the long-term care trust act was passed, I believe it was 2020, it was recognized nationally as a way to move forward and really um, a kind of a premier way of planning for the future for our constituents. The truth of the matter is most people, the vast majority of people, I don't have the numbers in front of me, do not purchase long-term care insurance. So what this specific bill was aimed at was ensuring that we have a system in place that people can put aside money in each payroll that they get, it's a payroll tax, to plan for that future. So when they do retire and they need, or when they need that long-term care insurance, whenever that is, that they have something set aside for that. And on average, you know, if a person doesn't have something set aside, the state's going to step in at some point when they exhaust all of the resources and pay through Medicaid. So it actually saves the state money and is a reasonable investment in terms of dollar for dollar investment for people. Um, Long-term care insurance is now, you know, there's been a lot of communication about the return on investment for that. And they're trying to get more people to um, engage and actually purchase those policies. Um, I think on average, the 39,000 is sufficient for most people, but like anything else, with a benefit like that, it's spreading that risk out amongst the whole population. So it's really important that the more people actually pay into it as possible. I think what you're talking about is a unique circumstance when people do have that catastrophic life event that occurs, that's not predictable. You know, that's one of the reasons why I think universal healthcare is so important that we have that system where, you know, you, it, no one should have to go bankrupt because they have a healthcare condition or have to worry because something catastrophic happened to them. I mean, it, it just, it's really unfortunate that that's the system that we have today and we need to do everything we can to help get us to that place. And in the meantime, I think you're seeing the legislature try to do these other things that are related to universal healthcare. Great answer. I uh, like that's uh, that's good. And yeah, you know, that's I figured that the state would probably step in um, if there was a, some sort of catastrophic uh, injury, like like a spinal cord injury or or something similar that that caused uh, caused you to use that money up in a, in a very short uh, time period. So, uh, you know, switching gears, I guess. To um, I wanted to know a little bit about you know, what your responsibilities are as the vice chair of the healthcare and wellness committee. And um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty amazing that, that uh, somebody who's a first year um, new representative is able to, to get onto a board and get a pretty high ranking position. So it must probably speaks towards your, your, uh, your background in that. So, you know, what, yeah, what are you, what are you guys doing on the healthcare and wellness committee? And, and I guess, what are your specific uh, tasks on that committee? So with the various committees, I've, I'm vice chair of the Healthcare and Wellness Committee, and I work directly with my chair, who is state representative Eileen Cody. She's kind of like an institution in the legislature for healthcare because she's been here for, I believe, over 20 years. Um, and by trade, she's a nurse, so she's very knowledgeable on healthcare, all and everything. <clears throat> and because of all that experience, you know, she can just, she's like an encyclopedia when it comes to different bills and topics. My job and my responsibility as vice chair is supporting her in that role. 
I also, so that means the physical running of meetings. Um, we have to make motions. We have to hear testimony from constituents, stakeholders on the bills when you have public hearings. That's an opportunity when a bill comes up for a public hearing for anyone to weigh in on whether they are supportive of that bill or if there are unintended consequences because you might have that knowledge and, and we don't. And that's really important for us to hear. Um, so I help facilitate that process. And then we also have our executive meetings, <clears throat> which is where we preview and plan the week ahead, two weeks, et cetera. We have really strict timelines within the legislature. We have 105 day sessions in odd numbered years and 60 day sessions in even numbered years. We just left a long session and next year will be a short session. So within that 105 or 60 day timeframe, you have timelines on when bills have to get out of their committee that they were assigned to. Um, and then they have to cross the house floor to go into the opposite house, going into the Senate. The Senate has the same deadlines, et cetera. It's kind of this complicated dance that we do in order to pass legislation. So um, facilitating the meetings, supporting my chair, doing outreach on bills to my colleagues in the healthcare committee, coordinating that, and then also planning and preparing for those meetings for the executive committee. And we also brief our caucus members. Um, so the caucus is, there's a house caucus of Democrats and a house caucus of Republicans. And as a group of 57, the vice chair and the chair brief that 57 member caucus on the healthcare bills before they come to the floor. So when they come to the floor, we're voting on the floor. My colleagues know the bill, what it aims to do. If there's any minds you know, around it that we might step in. It's this uh, really good briefing process. So by the time it comes to the floor, they know about it and they're ready to vote on it. Yeah, I'm sure that that must've been a very interesting you know, board to be a member of during uh, you know, the first pandemic we've had in over a hundred years. So, you know, it was there anything, I guess you wouldn't really know if there's anything out of the ordinary coming. I mean, obviously it, everything was out of the ordinary last year, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that, that's interesting that you were, you were able to get on that committee right away. And, and I think public know. testimony was unique this year. We really increased access to it being able to occur remotely. There's a lot of barriers, you know, we're a representative democracy. We represent our constituents. Not everyone can come to the Capitol and Olympia on a weekday to testify in a committee on a bill. Being able to do that remotely, we heard from so many folks, so many vulnerable communities, so many folks that haven't historically had their voices heard. So I'm really looking forward to us continuing that into the future, even after this pandemic has ended, because it really helps us, especially when we think about equity, making sure that we hear all voices. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, uh, great message for sure. Uh, you know, and then I did want to know, you know, you had mentioned now a couple of times that, that you guys were pretty much all remote um, this last session. So did you have any in-person votes or it was all through like Zoom or some similar Club. We had to go um, to the legislature in person on the very first day of the legislative session, which is the second Monday in January, in order to vote to change the rules in this House of Representatives in order for us to work remotely for the rest of the year. And mind you, this was on the heels of the insurrection at the national or congressional capitol. Um, and so it was a very, you know, as a first, my first day going there um, as a brand new legislator, it was a pretty surreal moment. I can only imagine. That's crazy. Um, are, is the plan then to, to be in in-person session this next go around or and when does that start? When does the next session start? I know you said that the last one ended not too long ago. So yeah, so we don't know yet what this next session will be like in terms of virtual versus in-person. We're doing everything we can. Everyone is very eager to get back to in-person um, meetings in the legislature. The legislative session starts on the second Monday of January. I believe that's January 10th of this next year. We can start pre-filing bills as early as December 10th, one month prior to session. And so people right now are really working. You know, If you wanna get a bill pre-filed in December, it's got to be basically drafted by mid-November and with the holiday and everything. So it's picking up, we're getting busy. And then it's a 60 day session. So um, it will be over before you blink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can only, yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be quick for sure. 
you know, I did want to talk before I let you go. I know we have just a few minutes left here, but I wanted to know, um, you know, like I said it, it, earlier in the interview that you're, you're a self-described healthcare and housing advocate and, you know, obviously being a, a, an Olympia city council member for a number of years and, and being uh, the, the Olympia mayor pro tem for a while there, you know, about the homelessness problem in our area. Um, it, you know, and I, and I don't know, I'm guessing it kind of seems like it's all over this, you know, at least Western Washington, and I'm sure many other places too. What do you think that the, like the astronomical housing prices are, are you know, and, and just how you know, housing costs in general are what's causing this homeless, uh, you know, kind of epidemic that we're dealing with right now? Or, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think first, Housing is foundational to a person's well-being. It's as essential as food, and you know, it, it's something that every single person needs. It's as essential as food and healthcare. Um, I think we are experiencing a perfect storm in terms of why we've seen this increase in unhoused individuals. Um, the lack of housing is definitely adding to it. In Washington state, according to the 2019 Up for Growth report, it demonstrated that we are 225,000 homes behind to keep up with current population growth. We saw at the last recession, the height of the, um, the recession and then the housing bubble, people left the construction trades and home building trades because there wasn't enough work there. So we saw an exodus of those workers. We've seen a tremendous amount of economic development and job creation. And we have not kept up with building homes at the same rate as that population increase. And it, anyone knows if you have more demand than you have supply, we see this huge inflation in the cost of housing. And there's a study by Urban Affairs, the Journal of Urban Affairs that shows that for every $100 increase in median rent, there is a corresponding 15% increase in homelessness. And I wanna note that that disproportionately impacts communities of color because they are more likely to be renters. Um, we also have in Washington state 17,000, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting all my statistics, 13,000 unaccompanied youth and young adults experiencing homelessness. This disproportionately impacts LGBTQ youth, especially. Um, we have this, this real perfect storm that has created an environment where we don't have enough housing in general, which is leaving, leading to increases in costs going up, both in home purchasing and also in rent. We also don't have supportive housing for people that are chronically homeless. I have an OFM, Office of Financial Management, a state agency report in 2019 that shows we needed in 2019, 17,000 uh, permanent supportive housing homes. Those are like a studio one bedroom apartment that a chronically homeless person can go to live and have access to a case manager, um, assistance with medication, things like that, mental health services. The truth is we've got multiple crises happening at the same time and it requires a coordinated state response. The other element of this problem is that we we delegate all of the zoning and housing rules of what can be built to local cities. And so that creates this hodgepodge response to creating housing all across the state, which isn't always the most popular when it comes to people that currently live in those areas, not wanting any new housing to be created. And this diffuse impact of these 225,000 homes that aren't being built you know, we have to change that trajectory because nothing that we're doing currently is going to change it or make a meaningful difference. So we're going to be looking at a housing crisis for the next five, 10 years. You know, there's a three-year delay. Any policies that we do right now, where it's going to take us three years in order to see the impacts of that with construction timelines, permitting, et cetera. This is a major area of focus of mine in the legislature, um, and it's directly linked to healthcare. Um, also wealth building opportunities for families, um, educational attainment. I mean, you look at the zip code that a person lives in and where they live, and you can trace all of that to so many different healthcare outcomes, disparities, et cetera. So um, I think that we need to address it more directly at the state level. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, so what are, what do you think are some 
things that we could like that the either the state or or the the legislature could do to um i guess get us through until some of these bigger um bigger broad uh, statewide policies can be implemented well first we made some significant investments 175 million dollars in the housing trust fund this last year we also some of the arpa dollars from the federal government are being used by cities to purchase things like old hotels and motels that they can convert into housing Second, you know, those are what we've done recently. We also boosted tenant protection significantly to help prevent people from becoming unhoused. We now have the right to counsel. If you are a low income renter and you get evicted, we're the first state in the nation that automatically will give you the right to counsel. We also need to legalize housing, um, diverse housing options like duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes. Most cities disallow those from being built. And that really creates a bottleneck in terms of the demand for the housing that we need and want and a missed opportunity. Um, and also for climate change, we really need to be building housing in cities. And that means infill housing. So to reach our climate change goals, um, people living near amenities are more likely to walk, bike, or take transit, which will help us achieve our reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. We also need to look at the streamlining the permitting process for when you go to build a home, um, impact fees, also financing for diverse housing. Like if you, if I'm a homeowner and I wanna split my lot and build a duplex and sell it to a family that can afford it, it's more economical than a single family home, making sure that they can get financing for that. So making sure that the financial institutions um, are enabling that type of lending, which hasn't historically been super popular hasn't been used as much. We, this is all pretty new. So looking at all those things, um, talking with folks, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this session and the next interim delving deeply into all these areas. There will be a zoning bill this year to legalize housing options um, and a couple others. And I'd be happy to come back another time and talk more about those. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love to. And I, I appreciate, I know we're running really uh, running up against it here. Um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Representative Bateman. It's not, yeah, you have, a, you know, it seems like you're doing great work and, and I'm, I'm happy you're uh, representing my, my district and I'm glad we could, uh, could do this and, and hear, you know, for the spinal cord injury community, at least hear a little bit about, um, you know, like what, what you're doing on the, the health care and wellness committee and, and all of that sort of thing. So thank you so much. I would love to catch back up maybe down the road a ways after ne your next session or something and we could get a little update from you. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. All right. That was Jessica Bateman, uh, 22nd Legislative District Representative in the state of Washington and uh, former Olympia City Councilwoman and uh, Mayor Pro Tem. And I don't know, I think that just means in like interim mayor because mm -hmm. she took over when the, the previous mayor had either resigned or right. yeah so she was uh she you know she's got to be a little liberal man to be uh to be uh, the olympia mayor or even on olympia city council well whenever you're coming out as pro universal health care which actually is a very popular very popular yeah um political standpoint for i mean across the board whether you're um a red or a blue or democrat or republican conservative or liberal however you want to call it so, um, but yeah, I mean, she, she definitely represents us well here. I was, I haven't actually listened to her speak much or, um, uh, you know, where she stood on some issues and she's just really, really knows about healthcare, which ties really well into our podcast because we always, whenever we used to have political guests on there, I mean, one thing we always tried to touch on was, Hey, like, you know, I'm quadriplegic. I need long-term care. I have to have nursing aids. Like, here's my point. I believe in universal health care. What about you? Right. Yeah. And yeah, that, I was, I wasn't sure what her stance was. So that's why I kind of came right out of the gates to find Dang. out what, you know, where she was on that. And it was nice to hear, yeah, that she, she absolutely is. So, so, um, you know, private health care, my uncle pays for private health care. And right now for a nursing aide, not even a nurse, just an aide to come in is $49 an hour, right? That's so, crazy. So if you need round-the-clock help, 
That adds up really quick. Right. Whoa. And you're so, in the process of getting him into an assisted living. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's like, what, like six over $6,000 a yeah. month, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because he needs, you know, around the clock help. Yeah. And, um, you know, he still has his wits about him, you know, but his body's given out. I mean, he's basically a quadriplegic, right? He needs help with everything. Yeah. You know, so um, it's really important that we start moving forward with uh, stuff like this right now. And I'm glad to see that Jessica is um, passionate about it. Yeah, we have to. We have yeah. to. I mean, I, we recently, remember, Jeremy, we talked a little bit about the podcast. On the podcast, my son had uh, an appendectomy, was in the hospital for 11 days. There was a lot of complications with it and stuff. Got the bill. We have pretty good health care insurance through my wife's employer. It's like around $138,000 for that for that hospital visit. Um, and our responsibility ended up being like around like almost $7,000. Now, I think to myself, what if I do have, let's say, because maybe if you have state medical, you might not end up paying any of that, right? But that's maybe if you're poor, poor, you're in poverty, right? Let's say you're just just right above the poverty line. Let's say you work at somewhere like a factory, a warehouse, you're making 19, 20 bucks an hour, you're living paycheck to paycheck, but you do have health care. You get a $7,000 bill. How could you even like look at being able to pay that right you know and And even i look at that bill and i'm like i'm gonna make payments on that there's like no way i'm gonna come out with seven thousand dollars like just like that so um yeah we have a problem man yeah yeah nobody should go and i think jessica mentioned that nobody should go bankrupt from medical bills that would bankrupt a lot of people oh yeah yeah well yeah like most people don't like and that goes back to you know kind of what Jessica was talking about with because I wanted to tie in how homelessness, healthcare, all these different things like uh, wage discrepancies between the the you know the top the the CEOs versus the people that work at the bottom. It's it's just it's unsustainable in our society. Like we shouldn't like if you are poor or you're just getting started in the workforce you shouldn't have to work like three jobs to make ends meet and be able to buy a house like ricardo i know your son and his girlfriend have great jobs they're in their like mid to late 20s and you know they're trying to save to buy a house right now and it's just the house prices are insane well i so 30 years ago i bought my house for less than a hundred thousand dollars right and uh he has more than that in savings to go put down on a house. But every time he went out to go look at a house, in this current market, in the last spring and last summer, he would say, okay, I'm ready to go. He'd get there, and then there'd be a bidding war, and he would need to come up with another $50,000. Right. So Brandon can't come up with 7000 for his yeah. medical bill. Where are you going to come up with $50,000, $150,000 to put down on a house, right? That was probably needed another $200,000 worth of work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because it had to be you know, somewhere that was going to be close, like Jessica said, to where you have amenities, right? So you don't have to drive, you don't have to walk, because he doesn't want to do a lot of commuting, right? Because... You know, there's a cost to that commuting and there's yeah. a cost, you know, all these things are related. So if you're spending two hours in the car in the morning, two hours in, in the evening, right? Do you have any family quality time? No. Right. And you have right. small kids. Are you going to their baseball games or their after school concerts? No, because you're busy commuting because you had to find housing that was so far out that right. you could afford to live in. So all these things are all it's a web, you know. It's a web of things that need to be addressed. And I'm happy that uh, Jessica has that point of view and sees that every one of these things impacts the other. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm super thankful for her coming on the show. It was, it was great to catch up and, and uh, we're going to try to, to do it again, run it back uh, when, like after this next session, um, which is coming up in, I guess in 2020, early 2022. And um, and that'll be like just a shorter, shorter session, shorter yeah. 60 day session instead of the 115 day or hundred and I don't know if she said 110 or 115 days, but, um, yeah. And then I did want to touch on one other thing, uh, that, so Beth Dolio, who that's it's another friend of the another podcast, friend of the podcast, she, um, 
was on. Uh, she actually ha- held Jessica's seat as the 22nd uh, representative from the 22nd legislative district uh, prior to running for Congress this last year, and she unfortunately lost, but um, is still involved in local politics. She reached out to me about, uh, so I filled out an application with the governor's office to be a member of, I guess, the Washington State Building Code Commission. They have like one spot reserved for somebody with a physical disability that um, just has like lived life experience of, you know, dealing with the ADA accessibility and, you know, kind of the best way to lay out buildings, things like that. So um, I applied for that. I'm really hoping to, to hear back, but I appreciate Beth. She she reached out and she was like, oh, I heard, you know, I heard about this opening and I thought, you know, you're the first person I thought of. So I was, uh, I was definitely thankful for that and I'm hoping to hear back soon. Governor Inslee hit me up, bro. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I like yeah. that. Uh, Beth was thinking of you um, as yeah. one of the first people to cross her mind. Um, and we had Beth in studio here um, on our podcast and we touched on a lot of things, specifically um, ADA accessibility. So I think it would be, you know, you have some personal experience with that in the past, actually getting, well, at least maybe with your dad, yeah. getting things changed yeah. in both, like maybe in just one physical spot, or I don't know if it was Washington in general. Yeah, I think we, we was just at our high school when I came back. There was no, like basically no wheelchair accessible doors or no way to get in and out of the school without having to have like someone multiple people with you for you yeah and so but by that by us you know my dad like threatened to sue the school district and then so the school district hired a gentleman from like massachusetts or something that had an ada uh, accessibility firm and he was he was a paraplegic um and Paul Allen ended up hiring him to, for the um, Seahawks Stadium and the EMP uh, Experience Music Project Museum in, in Seattle. So um, we got to go, like, because then my dad was on the mailing list, so we got to go to all kinds of cool, cool stuff and events after that with, you know, just tied But you in. did get a little bit of inside yeah, like knowledge I, yeah, on how those know. things work. We got to go tour uh, Seahawks Stadium ahead of time and see like all the amenities that um, were for specifically for people with disabilities, which was very cool. And uh, yeah, so I kind of got an inside look, you know, just slight inside look at that. So I, I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm excited to hopefully be able to serve on that committee for a few years, and I guess it's three year terms. So get my foot in the door, man. Start making some changes. Yeah, that'd be nice. Get those wheels on the ground. <laughs> uh, no doubt, no doubt. Well, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, guys, I think that's it. So I appreciate you both coming down and appreciate Jessica for taking some time out of her day and, and uh, joining me on the podcast. And yeah, until next week. Sounds good, Jeremy. All right. Oh, yeah, rate review listen like share all that good stuff you know what to do you know what to do